Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I am Cody Dronick, host and producer of Writer's Block. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. Our guests tonight include Ali Bryan, Angie Abdu, and Soapy Stocking. And congratulations to Lynn Cadence, who will be taking over the program from Jimpney and myself. Uh, this will be our last episode, so I would just like to take this opportunity to thank uh, all our loyal listeners and fans and to thank CJSW for the wonderful opportunity to be hosts of this show. Ali Bryan is the author of three novels, George Bugnet Award winner Roost, The Figs, and The Hill. Her nonfiction has been shortlisted for the John White Memorial Essay Prize and longlisted for the CBC Creative Nonfiction Prize. She is a 2018 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Arts Award Emerging Artist recipient. She lives with her family in Calgary, Alberta. Allie Bryan, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thanks for having me. So you are here today. I'm holding this beautiful little book in my hand. Um, it looks so deceptively peaceful on the outside. It's called The Hill. It's a YA book. Um, and I have to tell you, this dystopian, rip-snorting adventure fantasy story has just been keeping me up at night. Tell our, our listeners a little bit more about, um, you know, the story and some of the characters. Sure. Um, well, the hell, as you said, it, it's a, um, I would describe it as a feminist dystopian story. Um, some have described it a little bit as climate crisis or climate fiction or eco-fiction, um, given that that's sort of a background to the story. But it's essentially about a group of girls who live on an isolated island specifically on a hill, and um, they are all under the age of 15 and ultimately have to fend for themselves. They have this mysterious colony that has given them a manual from which they have to learn to do everything, and their world is rocked. Um, when my protagonist, Ren, um, recently takes over the helm or the leadership of the hill, and not long after she takes control, one of her charges, a nine-year-old, goes missing. And so she has to make this fateful decision whether to stay on the hill, as has been instructed by the manual, or whether she should leave and go after this missing girl. And, of course, she does decide to go after the missing girl. And that is where she encounters boys for the first time. So it is a coming-of-age story. Um, Ultimately, it is a story of adventure, but it challenges um, what we think about sort of gender roles and, you know, how girls are perceived in sort of fiction. Um, and, of course, it takes place with the environmental crisis as a backdrop. Yeah, so, so much going on. And the world building, the setting is almost like a character in and of itself. It's... it's um, mm-hmm an amazing place and as as the novel progresses you learn more and more about that place mm-hmm. um how <laughs> i was just curious how because basically the hill is a dump right it's an old dump and they mm-hmm. don't understand that in the context of the larger world but of course we as readers can picture that mm-hmm. what inspired you to pick that as a setting well, you know, I was actually traveling in Virginia a long time ago, and I was driving from the airport, and the person that was driving me, um, I, I was looking out at the landscape, and the landscape to me was really peculiar, but I didn't know much about Virginia heading in there, um, but there were these sort of long, this long stretch of just these big hills off the side of the interstate, and that's it just didn't seem like natural geography. And so I asked about it and the driver explained that those were what they call trash mountains, which was essentially old dumps or landfills that had essentially been landscaped over. So I had this, you know, I just kind of, I guess a little image always stuck in my mind. 
And then I've spent a lot of time in the mountains. Um, I love to hike and I love to be outside. And I also watch a ton of survival shows. I was an air cadet, so I've, you know, I've been outside. I've done winter camping. I've built lean-tos. So there was that whole aspect of being out in nature and being in the wild. So I think these two things sort of combine themselves. And I actually wrote the very first paragraph of that book while I was out at the Stamp Center during WordFest back in 2013. So um, I think the setting came pretty natural to me. And this, this notion of a, of a trash mountain, this landscaped landfill, um, was kind of the crux of it, but certainly, you know, there's there's elements of the Rocky Mountains that I think most people who um, live in and around Alberta and BC would would recognize for sure. But also, it is this profound and and horrible and effective metaphor for what we're doing to the world, and mm-hmm. and really, these characters are so impacted by what's going to come next potentially if we don't deal with our garbage. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly, and, and you know, there's a, there's a you know, obviously a, an underlying commentary there on on consumerism and you know fast fashion and the stuff that we insist on having and we keep and and you know single use items, plastics, you know, all of that. Um, it, it's essentially where we're at now, and it's funny because I remember someone else interviewing me and asking me about you know this new genre of climate fiction and or eco-fiction, and, and what does that mean? And I thought, well, you can't really, if you're writing any type of fiction nowadays, you can't ignore that. It's essentially where we are at. This is sort of the zeitgeist of the time, is we are in an environmental crisis. So um, it, it was sort of a natural thing that this would be a part of the book. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's an issues book per se, um, but it's certainly the world that they're living in uh, that's a huge component of, of where they're at. And, you know, the fact that they pull up ridiculous things or that they're able to survive for as long as they do on this dump says something about what we throw away and what we, the, the amount of stuff that we have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about girls and the empowerment because I don't want mm-hmm. listeners to think that this is, you know, bleak and, um, and sad because these are some kick-ass chicks, right? Yeah. And and what the manual teaches them, the whole vague purpose of their being, um, because it's because you know you also very cleverly leave the the reader <laughs> wishing that you'd already written the whole series, my dear, because we need to know what happens next. Um, they are, you know, it's beautiful how tough and resilient and resourceful they are. Yeah, and the, the funny thing is, this is how I see girls. This is, this is to me, what girls are. Girls are all those things, and they're funny, too. And it, it's really interesting because, um, you know, there we see so many archetypes or just girls being kind of one-dimensional in fiction, or if they are tough girls, they're tough to that sort of other extreme, you know. And I just, I wanted to represent girls more wholly, I guess, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I wanted to make sure that these girls had space for a range of emotions. So, um, you know, anger is not an emotion that are uh, that's typically afforded girls, but these girls get angry, but they also cry and they love and I really, it was just important to me to show that sort of full range of emotion. Um, I remember watching an interview with Charlize Theron when she was playing, I think, in the movie Monster. I think she played a serial killer or something horrible. But, um, you know, a male reporter said something like, you know, how, could, how did you prepare for this role? Um, like, where did that anger come from? And she was sort of put off because, you know, again, like people don't think women you know, can feel things like rage and frustration and, um, you know, without being something extreme. So, yeah. I want something to that makes them helpless instead of something that makes them powerful. Strong. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. It was just, it was like, and I guess a lot of that was inspired by, by my own girls. I've got, I've got three children, two of whom are girls. Both of them are in martial arts. Both of them, you know, are, are kids that can build things and take things apart and they can defend themselves and 
you know, but they also can, you know, put on mascara and, you know, not be ashamed to um, indulge in things that we, you know, think are traditionally feminine. So, you know, the whole book really explores this notion of gender and identity and, and roles and um, the labels, I think, that are put on girls. And, um, you know, I've tried to shed a lot of that and just let girls not only have space for anger, but, the, you know, the two big things that come to mind, too, are voice and choice. Um, so, you know, the girls in this book, they're, none of them are really afraid to speak their mind. They're quite vocal. Um, they're, they're confrontational, which are, is something that, you know, done girls are typically told to behave, to be good, to not speak up. And so it was really important to me to have characters that were, were bold and found their voice um, and choice. Um, so there's, there's characters in this book that, you know, the idea of being <clears throat> assigned to the role of mother is horrifying to them because mm -hmm. that's, you know, having children is not something they considered. And so you don't see that in a lot of fiction for women, let alone for, for teens, um, you know, that, that choice is sort of taken away or if someone makes choices that are maybe against the grain or less conventional or nonconformist, um, it, seems, it seems to be really radical. And I don't want to radicalize girls making choices for themselves because it works for them. I want that to be a little bit more normalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot, too, about uh, leadership, you know, because Ren is a, a reluctant leader. She, there, there is kind of this hierarchical system that, that mm -hmm. they comply with that's set out by the manual, and, and within that, they have to be survivors and, and scrappy and resourceful. So they, they comply, but, and yet they also um, question, right? They question what it is to be a leader. And, and um, I think as nuanced as your girls are about their emotions, it, this whole notion of leadership is equally nuanced. And it made me think a lot about how women lead in the world. Um, it is different. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, female leadership, I feel like we still have only scratched the surface of what that means. You know, so so often, they're, again, everything is so heavily labeled when it comes to women leading. So if they're, you know, if they're too much like a man, then, you know, it becomes a derogatory thing. But if they're too passive or inclusive, then they're not strong enough to be a leader and, um, which is, you know, just ridiculous. But when you look at a lot of the progressive um, countries in the world today, whether that's Scandinavia or you look at what's happening in um, New Zealand with who, you know, the female leadership role there and in parts of Africa, you know, you see women rising to the top, um, being confident in their decision-making and I guess developing their own style. And I think um, – I don't think there's any wrong or right way to leadership. It's just nice to see more women taking on leadership roles and finding a style that works for them. And, and again, taking these labels over like, oh, this is a female style of leadership and this is, you know, a male kind of style of leadership. It's, you know, people rising to the occasion and, and choosing a style that, it, that best serves the people that they're trying to serve. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and it is about service in this story. Mm. It's that it's that service leadership, right? It's because their role, her role, is very clear. She has to do this for the greater yeah. good, whether exactly. she wants to or not. mandated to because of the yeah the the sort of rules they have in place. Is she's the oldest one left behind, so therefore she automatically has to assume that leadership. And you know, part of the reason they have been successful is because they followed the rules. Um, and again, girls typically follow the rules. And that was another kind of interesting theme in the book is this um, issue of risk and, and how, uh, you know, women are, are actually, from the time they're young, not conditioned to take risks. We're much more likely as parents or in society to, you know, you know get our boys to do that. And I've really reflected on that as a parent, you know, am I holding my girls back to protect them in some capacity because that's sort of the way we've always been told to do things. We're, women are told not to fail. 
Um, and I've read some interesting statistics about how a man will apply for a job if he matches or meets 60 to 70% of the criteria. Mm-hmm. And where mm-hmm. women tend to not apply for positions unless they meet it 100%. Why is that? You know, and I remember listening to a TED Talk about a woman who was going to go into politics. And it was, she was going to run for the first time, didn't have a ton of experience, and everyone tried to talk her out of it. And the reason was like, well, you're going to fail. And it's like, and it comes to even, you know, climbing playground structures, you know. Boys are taught, like, okay, try those monkey bars. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to fall and break your end. Girls are typically told or taught not to take risks. Uh, and so I really wanted these girls to, you know, they follow the rules, and yet there's this natural inclination to want to take some risk. And what happens when they do that? You know, mm-hmm. so um, and it's really freeing. I think I know with my own daughters, you know, they're taught to sort of people please, and it's like no matter how hard I try to, you know, tell my daughters it's okay to say no or not to do these things, it's just kind of ingrained, um, mm-hmm. kind of institutionalized. So taking risk, being okay with saying no, being okay that you're not likable. Um, these are, are themes that, you know, that are definitely explored in the book. And just this notion of questioning, questioning on a personal level, is this right for me? Does this decision feel right? And questioning on that larger sort of societal level, why are we doing this? You know, mm-hmm. why is this the right decision? Is there something, is there legitimate danger or fear here? Or is there some control yeah for sure be be more reflective right mm-hmm. but then at the same time you know i'm trying not to devalue, devalue femininity too like because i've noticed that as well is that sometimes it's like girls you know get strong and they go into the workplace and and you know they're learning to weld or they become a you know president of a company and and then it's like you know where they like they're on the tennis court but then they're ashamed if they have fake eyelashes at the same time. You know what I mean? Or if they put their kid in daycare. So it's yeah. so troubling the way that these, you know, the messaging is. And which again, I guess I wanted these girls to feel that they had the power to make the decisions that felt right for them. I was curious about the the hero's journey versus the heroine's journey. And it's in terms of creating this novel, you took a different tact. Oh, you know, I didn't really follow, I guess, I wasn't conscious of following either structure. I know, you know, with the hero's journey, it's, it's again, more of a masculine approach. It's the, you know, the he does something typically that is beneficial for the whole world, where a heroine's journey is maybe more kind of internal. Um, I, I didn't really kind of think about that when I was, was writing it. Um you know, it just, it, the story sort of evolved and, you know, I didn't even, I had never really written any sort of genre fiction before. I'd never written any dystopian or any type of action. So it was a, a real, I guess, learning curve for me. Um, so I didn't even really think about that. And in some ways, I think that was a good thing because I might have uh, written myself into a few tropes or disappointed because I would have been trying to follow maybe a predictable structure. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, I don't even, I don't even think I've, even in the second book, I've actually just finished the second book in this series. And even then I just didn't even think of it in terms of, of, of a process or a structure. It's just continuing on, I guess, in the adventure and just looking at the way the experiences would be impacts on our protagonist in terms of how she grows. Yeah. No, I was just curious because there were, there was to me such a distinct um, inner world and outer world and her purpose in, in each, you know, and that she was very self-reflective, like struggling with her mm-hmm. her role and, and, her, and the, the whole relationship factor, you know, how much relationships uh, – have an impact on her decision making, which was was really lovely, very human. I, it, you know, it was, and uh, vulnerable too. And that's the other thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, I think too, sometimes when you have girls in roles where they're warriors or they're in battle, you know, I'm used to seeing them written probably from a more masculine perspective, where 
and, but still almost sexualized. So it's like they pull the helmet off in the middle of the field and they're waving fire comes out. And it's like, I'm a woman. I'm a pilot to avoid it. I just want these girls, again, to be more whole and to be vulnerable. And there's something lovely about writing about teens, too, and, and you know, being the parents of teens. Um, you know, they it's how they are reflective constantly on these decisions. And they, you know, it's me versus the world. And, it, and then, of course, it's just responsible for this world. And, and I really wanted her to be thinking her way through this, both with her heart and with her head and to really see the sort of the magnitude and the scope of, of just what she was up against. I think that made it, you know, human on the best level. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just um, wrap up with some very exciting news you got yesterday. So your yeah. school kids is long listed for the 2021 Wilbert Smith Adventure Writing Prize, uh, which celebrates the best adventure stories of the last year. That's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, I was, this, you know, it was such a thrill because honestly, when I set out to write an adventure story for girls, which is ultimately what I wanted, um, I never figured they would, you know, end up on that list. And so it feels like a huge accomplishment. Um, Super cool too. I I know that award doesn't, there's not a ton of women usually represented. I don't know if it's just because we're not writing about adventure. Um, you know, and maybe that's because we don't have time to even have adventures in our own lives, which kind of says something about the role of women in society. But, um, yeah, it was just, it was really cool. A to be one of the only, I think there's only three female writers on that list. I believe I'm the only Canadian on that list because um, it is an international prize. And it's the only YA book to my knowledge. So it was, yeah, it was a, a wonderful bit of information that I received and you know whether it moves on to the short list it's just so awesome for the book to be recognized and you know I think it's easy to look at the the bigger issues of gender and and the environment and all of those things but again it still is at its heart it's an adventure story it's two girls um you know going through this world and experiencing it and it's um and everything it has to offer so that's it's really fun that it was recognized for that um, part of the story. Mm-hmm. No, it's a fantastic book. Thank you so much for being on CJSW Writers Block, and um, we can't wait, wait for you know for you to sell the movie rights because that's bound to come next, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, I certainly would love to see it on the screen because it definitely has that very visceral feel. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, congratulations, and, and uh, thanks so much, and good luck with, with moving up that list. Awesome. <laughs> thanks, Disney. Angie Abdu is the author of five novels and a memoir of hockey parenting, Ice Home. Her first novel, The Bone Cage, was a CBC Canada Reads finalist and awarded the 2011-2012 McEwen Book of the Year. Angie is an associate professor of creative writing at Athabasca University. She lives in Fernie, B.C. with her family and two beloved unruly dogs. Angie Abdu, welcome to TGSW Writer's Block. Hello, thanks for having me. You are here today with your latest book called This One Wild Life. Now, it's branded on the cover as a mother-daughter wilderness memoir, but I, as a reader, I felt like this beautiful book was about so many, it's about that, and it's about so many other layers as well. I kept having this image of one of those Russian matryoshka nesting dolls, you know, where you you open it up and there's another layer, and then you open it up and there's another beautiful layer. Oh, that's a beautiful image. Thank you. So, if I was going to brand it something, I would say it's about... It's a book about all the ways that you're trying to make sense of the relationships in your life. That's perfect. I should have asked you first. <laughs> the idea started as the mother-daughter hiking part, but I, when I write, I just think more deeply about everything than I do when I'm not writing. And I just, when, you know, often I 
memoir seems to be about life, about life from someone's point of view and, and all the research that they bring into answering the questions that their own life raises. But you can't really just say that, right? This is a book about life. <laughs> so, yeah. so we went with the tagline with how it started, but I'm glad that you find that it's about much more than that. I find it a difficult book to talk about. I'm normally very talky about my book, but with this one, I find it hard to describe in a way that sounds particularly interesting. And like me and my daughter went hiking a lot and I wrote about it. So I'm glad that you found a way to describe it that sounds interesting. Well, what resonated for me was that there is a, a beautiful and transparent exploration of your interiority. And I think as humans, and especially as women, we have so many different kinds of relationships you know, the hats that we wear and, and how we're looked at depending on what hat we're wearing. And, um, and, and because Katie, your daughter, is such a part of this book, and it kind of starts with this impetus of how you see her changing, how she shifts her hats, and your concern about that, right? So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about that piece. I want to back up to where you said about the interiority because that was really important to me when I was writing. I think I, I had a bit of a crisis around writing because I mean, there's so many books and it feels like there's fewer readers and how do you get attention for a book and what's the point of writing the book if you don't have any readers and I was having that kind of crisis and then I hear people say a lot, you know, the best writing being done right now is being done for TV and I just imagine these rooms full of brilliant writers all working together in a group trying to come up with the best plot twist and the best characterization and the funniest lines and the deepest insights. And I thought, how can one writer scribbling away in their office compete with that? Like, what is it? Because I still do really like books, despite there being all these other ways of writing and telling story. I like the old fashioned book. And I thought, well, what is it that one writer alone in her office can do that a team of brilliant people sitting around a table working together can't do? And I thought it's about that intimacy, like just being really honest with what it feels like to be you alive in the world. And maybe that's what we don't have enough of when everything is so polished and clever and tight. Maybe we don't have enough of but this is this is what it feels like to be a person living right now. And so that interiority and like real intimacy and honesty is something I really strive for. So I'm glad that you mentioned that right away. Mm-hmm. If, if you are one thing, Angie, in all of your work, you are terribly beautifully honest and and that shines through in all of the layers that you talk about in this book it makes it uncomfortable to be in the world sometimes because I put the book out trying to do that but I'm alone in my office and then when suddenly I live in a very small town and everybody's reading that book I I feel very naked you know (laughs) I feel very Mm -hmm. it can be uncomfortable but I just know that's what I appreciate as a reader so I try to do that and then the other thing you said about the changing hats, and the, I was thinking a lot about that because when you write narrative, you really can try to pin somebody to the page, but it's never, I mean, people are constantly shifting. So every time we solidify them into a story, we're, we're you know, kind of, there's an element of fiction to it, even in nonfiction. So I wanted to make it clear that, you know, I can see this. Um, tween girl shifting she wasn't even a tween that she was nine years old when I was writing so I can see her shifting before my eyes and trying on personalities and deciding who we're going to be so when I try to pin her to the page I lose some of that and then you're right I've, I recognize the same in myself as an adult you know but am I a am I a writer am I a mom am I a career woman am I a wife am I an athlete am I a coach am I and you're always trying on different different personalities and shifting around and there's I think if you don't acknowledge that in memoir, then you your representation of the person is limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be able to acknowledge it in order to get as many facets of that person, whether it's yourself or your daughter or some you know famous dead person you're writing about, right? Because we are not any of us one thing. Yeah, Kat, and it's, I, I've noticed both of my children at different stages played around with their names, like wanting to change from their nickname to their long name or vice versa and around. And Katie has really, she was Katie and then she was Kat and then she was Kate and then she was Catherine. And lately she's decided she wants to be called Rin, which is actually pretty cute and suits her. 
and is original, but it's hard, it's hard to change some of the names. So in my head, she's very much Katie, but we try to shift when she decides she's someone else. <laughs> but I think that's a, that's their inside way of, of saying, well, I'm not that person, not that little Katie that I used to be anymore. I'm somebody else now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the word shyness is, is one of the threads that runs throughout this book. Um, shyness and also its counterpart, which is, you know, being very public, being a very public person. Tell me more about the word shyness and what you came to learn about it. Yeah, so it all started this book when I, I, I always thought of Katie as incredibly strong and independent and confident, right, when she was very young. And then in a couple of years when I was spending a lot of time with her, I was running around with my son's hockey suddenly shyness became an issue at school and I was shocked. I just didn't see it coming and I couldn't even associate the word with her, but she had gotten to a stage where she was having trouble making friends at school and she was having trouble speaking out in class. And if she had to go to the office or to the library, she was very timid about going alone. So it was like, you know, interfering with regular school work. And I felt like I'd failed her. I really felt like it was my fault, which is silly in retrospect, but you know how moms are full of guilt. Or maybe I shouldn't say that this mom can be full of guilt. Oh, this this mom too, for sure. (laughs) Which is not really helpful, right? But anyways, that that was the start of the book, the really dedicating to, I'm going to spend more time with her, which she needs more mother-daughter time, and we're going to work on building her confidence, and we're going to get out of nature and do all these hikes. But then um, in the research I did, I found there's all different kinds of, like there's, introverted somebody who just enjoys their time alone more than their social time and finds time alone recharging whereas they find social time draining and I don't think that's my daughter for example because she actually quite likes group activities over solo activities so she had what she had gotten was really kind of social anxiety and it's interesting because it was right around the time that things had blown up for me online and I was feeling very social anxious socially anxious in a way I never did before and I was worrying a lot about what people thought of me and I was really feeling like people didn't like me and it was very preoccupying and mm-hmm. girls imitate their mothers and they soak up their mother's emotions so I do wonder how much that crisis I went through influenced her personality at a very um, vulnerable time yeah there might have been an echo right where she was noticing that she was being noticed and that it could hurt her and that and that she saw you literally being hurt from people noticing you yeah and it's funny how i mean life just chugs along and it's busy and fast and you don't notice these things while they're happening but then writing about it and writing about you know her being worried what people think about her and her being scared to you know put herself out there in public and then writing what was happening to me along the same time you're like oh see i see this parallel i mean i did nothing for two years except for worry about what people thought of me so how could that not rub off a little bit Mm -hmm. and so now that you and katie because she has been uh, participating in some of your your public events for this book um where are you at now the two of you now that you have your your mother-daughter book and you're talking about it together but it's also you know you're looking back at it she's she's so sweet she's been involved in the media stuff and it's not easy for her she's not like she doesn't struggle with shyness like she used to but she's not super um outgoing i wouldn't say she's not chatty or anything once she gets to know you she is but you know, it's out of her comfort to stand up and talk to strangers. Um, but she's been participating and she was interviewed for this Vancouver Sun interview. And she said, um, she said, at least she was, I sometimes have a hard time making friends, but at least I know my mom will always be my friend. <laughs> Just oh, my heart. <laughs> she's we really talk about this book, like our book. And, um, She's very involved. Like there was a, a review in the Globe and Mail and she was as excited as I was about that. She's very much invested in it being our book together. And she does, I mean, she finds it, um, what did she say? She said, it's pretty cool, but also embarrassing. And I'm like, that's exactly what it is. Pretty cool, but also embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like you just out there, right? And you feel very much people looking at you and people. So um, I just said, why do we do it? Why do we write memoirs? A question if you feel so exposed, but I think, and I'm always trying to answer these questions, but I think it's when I'm 
honest on a page and think deeply about my life and do this research that I create a space for readers to do that as well while they're reading. So I, I, I kind of say to them, like, I've done all this reading on this topic, so you don't have to. I'm just going to give you the good bits, and I'm going to think about how it applies to my life, and I'm going to be really honest and really open and um, think very critically about my own life and not create the space for readers to do the same about their own own life. So it's like a, I think a memoir is a really intimate conversation with a close friend. And so those books mean so much to me. So I guess that's why I write them. But it is something I wonder why do it if it's embarrassing, right? Yeah, I, I, I was asking myself that question too when I was reading it. But, you know, just the example that you gave about the research that you did, I think the hat, one very meaningful hat for you must be your your role as an educator and a researcher and, and someone who has a voice. And if you share that voice, then as you say, it, other people hear it and perhaps um, gain strength from that. And, and then, you know, it's that power of one thing, right? If, if we all speak out and that's how the world changes for the better. Yeah, and that was very much, this This book came from having done a book about my son and hockey first, and that was all a lot more obvious why I was doing it with the hockey book, because I look at hockey culture and I think something needs to change. This is not healthy, the way adults are behaving and the, you know, the kind of experience hockey culture creates for children. None of it is very healthy. I shouldn't say none of it. There are parts of it which are not very healthy. And so I, I was listening to all the experts talking, and the experts, talking and the head of hockey can and the head of all the hockey organizations they're very much aware that hockey should be purely for fun until after puberty there shouldn't be so much emphasis on cheering and there should be you know parents <laughs> should behave themselves all, all those things that, that at the high level they know that and kids should do multi-sport they can specialize too young all of these things but it's just not filtering down to the grassroots level and so i thought if i write a personal book about my hockey family that's kind of entertaining I take all that research and weave it through and hockey moms passing through Walmart see oh hockey mom book I'm a hockey mom book I'll read that and then that research that top level research starts filtering into families and influencing their decisions and behaviors that would be a good thing so just getting the research into everybody's hands so that was very clear why I was writing that kind of book and then I guess mm-hmm. that same sort of book just filtered into the second follow-up book with my daughter and hiking mm-hmm. but yeah I guess my background as an academic I'd never really merged those two kinds of writings before like I had done academic work before and then I quit being an academic in for a while and became a creative writer and the two were very distinct in my mind so but this format this memoir where I make my own life into story weave in research is an interesting to me blend of both of those kinds of writing mm-hmm. so, so and without that, the research I would feel I think without having the research it would feel kind of uh, narcissistic to me kind of navel gazing but I feel like the personal story engages the reader and then the research um, gives it some substance and justifies telling the personal story mm-hmm. yeah the story is the hook as always um that that said, you know, your reputation for, for saying what you think, including when those thoughts are deemed unpopular, because it, it wasn't like everybody loved the hockey book either. You said some hard truths. Yeah. And, and you are a speaker of truth, and you do it publicly. And this One Wild Life also chronicles the price you paid for, for that honesty and for being shunned socially, especially on social media. So I'm curious about that element of the book, but, you know, as importantly, um, how, what you've learned and how you manage your tendency of being, you know, honest and transparent now. Yeah, I really hated that being, um, whatever shunned or called down or mobbed or whatever you want to call it on social media. It was really, really unpleasant. I'm a person who who likes to be liked, right? I'm a pleaser and uh, um, all of that. So I found it horrible. And just a lot of people who I thought were my friends either turned against me very quickly or just, I guess the word is ghosted, the word we use now, but just disappeared. And I, I, you know, there are people who 
who were my friend when I was advantageous to be friends with professionally. And then when I became ostracized, suddenly weren't my friends when I had nothing to offer them. And that was just absolutely crushing and heartbreaking. So I really hated it. Um, and, and I hate the way it plays out on social media in a way that I don't think people act like that off the line. I think people online, they say things they wouldn't say. They're very, very firm in their positions. They, that it's, it's harsh. There's lots of hostility. There's a real group mentality. People, you know, mob together against the outsiders. And, uh, it's just very unpleasant. And I spent a lot of time thinking of how devastated I was by it and how poor, you know, preteens or teens would ever cope with such a thing. So mm-hmm. that was horrible. I, I thought about, um, you know, what does social media add to a person's life? Do I need to be on it? And I think, I think as a writer in this time, you do need to be on it. I mean, I live in a remote place. I need people to remember I exist. I need people to know that I have a new book coming out and social media is the easiest way to do that. I want to be part of, I mean, there's a lot, there are good things on it too. I like being part of certain writing communities because I don't have a big writing community here in a small town. I like staying in touch with my extended family. So I just, I really think social media is something that needs to be managed every day. Like you can, I can slide into the same kind of obsessive behavior over it, or it's, it feels like an addiction, checking it all the time, you know, do they like me, do they like me, do they like this picture, do they like this book review or whatever, just constant looking for affirmation there. Mm-hmm. So I have to be really vigilant about how I manage it and just remember that it's a tool, and I, I do that by checking in with my body. The body always seems to know before the mind. So when I get in on, I'm scrolling and as soon as I start to feel gross, I'm done. Like I'm put the phone down, go for a walk, <laughs> put the phone down and go for a walk. So I just listen and it does not take me very long to feel gross. I think, you know, we, it's, um, you can notice who, who's excluding you or who, uh, you know, who I, I, I think it promotes envy. Like we, we compare ourselves to other people on the social media, but they're always posting their best case scenario. And I think, oh, if someone knew my life only by what's on social media, it would make them feel bad too. They would feel bad by comparison. So we post their best lives on social media, but then sitting on this end, just scrolling through, I'm thinking, oh, I didn't do that nice thing with my children this weekend, or I didn't get invited to that festival, or I didn't get reviewed in that place, or whatever. You compare yourself negatively, and it's, it's not healthy. So I use it, try to use it now just for the parts that make me feel good, staying connected with family and friends. And then as soon as I, you know, I do post my book news so that it gets out there. Mm-hmm. As soon as I feel myself going, oh, this doesn't make me feel good anymore, I just put the phone down. And I think nature, coming back to that part of the book, is such a great antidote. And that's one of the things I love about our big, big trips, like our big hiking trips, or our big canoeing trips, is just getting out of self-service and actually being completely off our phones for a week is, so healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so that is the wilderness part of this book, where you know it, it, your your main mission was to was this plan to take Katie hiking, and and a hike a week, and that this would be good for her. And actually, it was in the end, it was good for her, but it was possibly more more good for you. <laughs> Oh, that's well seen. You know, we said that exactly that way yet. And that's true. Yeah, that is true. It saved my life. I can say that. And it's changed my life completely. Like, I, I, it was really transformative that summer in my way that I'm able to access a certain state of being by getting out by myself in the woods. And I, it's right there. Anytime I need that, it's right there. Yeah. So... I have to ask, ask you this as the girl who was painfully shy and uh, who has never stopped talking to trees. I have to say one of my favorite parts of this book was your relationship, your profound relationship with a magical tree that lives beside your house. And, and I feel like that tree is there for the purpose of reminding you to put your phone down and go outside. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about the tree. I love the tree. Yeah, and that's another thing about writing. I would never tell somebody that 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 situation that happened is just so weird and kooky. I would be like, oh, people will laugh at me or I'll sound like a flake. But when you're writing and when I am writing and being honest, I put everything down. And now suddenly my story about my tree is out in the world. But I did. I had this very religious experience, spiritual experience, right when I was feeling at my lowest with the social media stuff. And I was feeling... Like I say, I wasn't suicidal. My husband begs to differ. I was 
very low. It was bad. And I had, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I'd feel okay for one second. And then I remember, oh, right. Everybody hates me. I've been ostracized. I'm not invited anywhere anymore. I'm not included in any groups anymore. People are saying horrible things about me. And, you know, and all that would come rushing back to me. And I would just feel sick. But this one morning, I there's a giant cottonwood out my window there's kind of an old growth cottonwood forest and this one tree was just um to, to be brief it was just I felt like it was radiating love and acceptance and I felt really held up I felt this full body euphoric experience looking at this tree and so it became a uh, ritual for me I'd leave my blinds open and when I woke up the first thing I would do would look at it would look at that tree and so instead of having that moment of panic remembering how poorly things had gone I would have this interaction with the tree whenever I felt panic I would go to the tree <laughs> so, so that was a very I have never had an experience like that before and it was very profound and very moving well it's a beautiful thread in this book of beautiful threads and Abdu, thank you so much for speaking to us on CJSW Writer's Block oh thank you so much for having me and thank you for reading my book You are listening to 90.9 FM CJSW. This is Writer's Block. Sophie Stocking writes, illustrates, and parents in Calgary, Alberta. Her first novel, Corridor 9, was published by Thistledown Press in 2019. She's here to talk about her book of short stories, Walking Leonard. Sophie Stocking, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Oh, hi, Timothy. Thanks for having me. You are here with your second book, which uh, your first book was a novel, and this is a book of short stories called Walking Leonard and Other Stories. I don't quite know where to start with all of these beautiful and and provocative stories. Um, There are some themes running through them, and I thought maybe we could explore kind of one, one, you know, next to the other. Okay, cool. So first of all, I guess I have to ask you, you know, the difference between writing a novel and writing a bunch of short stories. Tell us about that. I I think a novel is a lot of short stories strung together in some respects. Maybe that's the difference. Yeah. So so one of the themes is about this whole world of, we'll call it counterculture, people who live a little bit outside of you know, the stereotypical norms. Yes. And and especially the children within those worlds and how they make sense of them. So I'm thinking of stories like Rabbit Trails and Shelter Belt. Where did all of that come from? And, and you know, tell us a little bit more about that world. Examining how children um, just land in their families um, without any choice and without any, you know... Um, it's it's kind of like being, you know, plunked into a cult, and um, especially if those worlds are very isolated, um, it can be very much a cult. And then, how do you find um, out the truth? How do you find out a broader reality? Um, and I think kids do that in different ways. Certainly in um, Rabbit Trails and also Shelter Belt, it's very much about um, the protective force of nature um, mm-hmm. and how how that can be so uh, supportive in a situation that really isn't healthy or supportive. Um, but also um, how kids pull, find... Um, nurturing and sustenance from people outside of their families um, and pull them out of all sorts of little nooks and crannies, like the tiniest morsels of support and mm-hmm. nurturing and good advice that a child can find. Um, and they and they put it in their toolkit and they take it with them. I, I worked as a children's counselor at a woman's shelter for some years and um, and you realize how kids in terrible situations have to have to take these tiny bits of nurturance and and put them in their toolkit and go forward and how some of them 
succeed at that, which is extraordinary. Um, and I also, of course, grew up in, you know, kind of a bohemian alternative uh, home. And these ones, they can be fairly isolating. And um, from the common, you know, the common culture surrounding you. And um, so it's a struggle to figure out uh, what is good about your family of origin? What do you want to keep? And what do you want to reject? And I think in um, Shelter Belt, she keeps something that's very precious about her very weird family. And that is um, she doesn't have the need to conform um, as sort of dysfunctional as her family is. That is a useful gift. And as you know, one could say, oh, my family is crazy and the rest of the world is not. Well, the rest of the world is also crazy in different ways. And yeah. she's able to, um, I think, look at it, take, I think she's able to look at it critically and um, not just flip one way or the other, which. Um, well, and that's, that's kind of what is so evocative about um walking Leonard too is that in a way the counterculture people that the the youngster ends up befriending seems to be more normal than her very normal yeah <laughs> you know incredibly accomplished family yeah yeah there's something very beautiful about that where you know she finds her courage and resilience and it it is uh, it is more celebrated by these two, you know, kind of weirdos living on the fringe than in a, in a trailer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I'm also very interested in um, you know we think of children who are um, I think there's a lot of children in this world who are who are orphaned in very wealthy um, families you know, very accomplished, very wealthy families. And there's a lot of poor little rich kids that we also don't see, um, you know, who might have every material luxury, but who perhaps don't have um, the psychological, uh, they're not seen by their parents or um, perhaps nurtured in the best way. You know, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of dysfunction um, and very wealthy families as well and we tend not to maybe see that and it's uh, very confusing for the child involved to um to separate out uh the emotional experience from all the all the um physical well-being so yeah those are all themes that i was really interested in exploring with those, you, those three you, stories you don't shy away from hard truths and your your stories about motherhood too, because there's there's a, a a number of stories about motherhood, and um, there's a lot of love in them, but there's also you know a, a really raw truth about how motherhood brings you to a place where although you still have choices, um, there are less options. And yes, yes. as a mother, you 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 wrestle with with that reality. Yeah, know? it's painful. Um, yeah, I think um, parenthood is about having to be terribly honest with yourself, and sometimes it involves really hard sacrifices. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and yeah, leaps into the dark. Like just having a baby is a massive a massive leap into the dark. And um, you don't know how you will be able to do it. Um, what sort of how uh, naturally suited you'll be to the task, um, etc. And uh, and then well, for, it's not not something you can undo. No, <laughs> it certainly isn't. <laughs> and then then there's yeah, there's all these sort of um, big structures in your life like what sort of partner do you have what uh, what sort of financial situation do you have um they're like it's like navigating 
a river with with big boulders and yeah there's sort of a choice but um you're going really fast down the river and you don't want to hit that rock and um maybe you're not too good at paddling you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty pretty uh and and from these decisions such important um repercussions will roll out i i think the domestic and these you know stories about yeah the domestic and children um we think of that as so not dramatic i think these are the most dramatic stories you can tell because they're the foundation of everyone's lives um how those little stories rolled out when we were tiny you know yeah how indelible they are in every choice we make thereafter yeah so my last question is is another uh, story about hard choices and and how society measures what is a reasonable choice in the in the story Archimedes you talk about um, a couple who is wrestling with Alzheimer's mm-hmm. where did that story come from it came from my mother um, I've gone through it's probably been 12 years now um, navigating Alzheimer's alongside my mom. I was her sort of primary support person. Uh, And so it was really looking at, um, well, really being faced with the fact that we didn't have many choices, that um, how this would roll out, um, you know, eventually the options I saw for her um, you know, in terms of care and uh, in particular a lockdown dementia ward um, terrified me and I couldn't see how she could be happy under these circumstances and how could I make it so she would be happy and and a strong sense of um, a system that was in place that um, could just sort of be like a current that took us, you know, um, mm-hmm. to in a way that I didn't necessarily want to roll out for her um, that she wouldn't have chosen. Um, and so there is a lot of fear in that story, I think. Um, but I was also thinking, my mother, it turned out, <laughs> institutionalized very well and has largely been really very happy um, in these institutional settings. Um, but I was looking very much at my husband thinking if this was him, uh, he wouldn't be. And what what would be the loving thing? What would the, as a wife, what would my duty be to truly uh, love him in these circumstances and make these decisions in the right way for him? And and what we consider um, societally, what we've sort of all apparently agreed on is safety, physical safety, above all else. Um, and, you know, probably it's all to a large extent because, you know, organizations don't want to be sued. Um, yeah, and what decisions would I make under those yeah. circumstances? Um, and what an enormous responsibility. Oh. And, and how, how do you weigh somebody's psych- psychological and spiritual safety against their... Um, physical safety yeah yeah and I, I think as a society we've um, you know in, in Canada sort of taken on a Christian model um, that life is precious always and um, beyond all else and the physical I, I, life the, the physical breathing. life yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in the story the, she goes to see a lockdown dementia ward and um, I have volunteered in a lot of um, a number of um, dementia wards, and thankfully, the one I found for my mother is is really great. But um, a lot of them aren't and weren't certainly um, like ten years ago. And yeah, it looked like, as the lady says, it looked like a tarted up prison. <laughs> it wasn't, and uh, it wasn't actually that tarted up either. It was just kind of miserable. So yeah. Um, but her neighbor says, I wouldn't want anything to happen to my husband. He was such a good man. I, want, I wouldn't want anything to happen to him. And she says, well, something has happened to him. He's here. Yeah. So, yeah. 
well, we won't, we won't spoil it for the reader. Walking Leonard and other stories is, is just very poetic and, and beautiful and compelling book. It's like the characters stay with you. And I want to thank you for writing it and for coming on to the show and telling us about oh, it. Oh, thank you so much, Tiffany. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to Writer's Block. It's going to be in good hands. Thank you to everyone in Calgary who loves books and to everyone who supported our show. It's been a wonderful ride.